0: Hi, I'm Billy Shore. This is Add Passion and Stir. We're in Boston today with three amazing people, entrepreneurs each in their own way, uh, some business and some social. Uh, let me first welcome Will Gilson, uh, who's got the Puritan and Company restaurant in Cambridge. My wife Rosemary and our son Nate, we ate there Sunday morning for brunch. I'd say Will, probably the best brunch I've had in Massachusetts, if not anywhere well, thank in you. a long, long time. Absolutely I'm, amazing. I'm sorry I didn't bring any pastries with me today. So I am too. <laughs> uh, anyhow, we're, we're really glad
1: to have you. Great. Thank you for having me.
0: And we've got Sam Greenberg and Sarah Rosencrantz from the y to y Youth Homeless Shelter at uh, really right at Harvard Square. Um, and we're thrilled to have both of you, Sarah, Sam.
2: Awesome. Thanks, thanks for having us. I'm
3: just upset that Will didn't bring pastries. Yeah, actually, I know. Not this, is, this is going
0: to haunt me. Uh, well, I'm, I'm going to start with Will, because it really it made such an impression on me because it was, uh, first of all, it's a restaurant where you feel comfortable immediately. And I think you kind of, you know, all, all three of you are actually engaged in hospitality in different ways. But uh, as soon as we got there, Will, even though I think I was maybe the oldest person in the restaurant, it's a, it's a young crowd. Uh, you just felt home right away. And it's got this comfortable atmosphere and the food really feels like home cooking. It's just amazing. And you started when you were very young in the restaurant business, I think working in the north end at a pretty tender age of like 15?
1: Yeah, yeah. So my parents were farmers and uh, that's the world that I grew up in, which I think is an incredibly humbling background, especially coming from Massachusetts because the only other thing that's as risky of being a farmer in Massachusetts is being a compulsive gambler. Uh, Because every year you're just kind of like hoping and praying for it to be the big year. Uh, But for us, what we, you know, we realized when we finally got into having a place that was our own, I mean, I've worked in a number of different places for the past uh, almost 20 years now. Um, but when we finally had a place that was our own. We opened Puritan five years ago. We wanted it to feel like when you come in there, you're coming over someone's house. Restaurants can feel so transactional or so busy or so um, like a scene. Uh, and we didn't want that to be the case. And, and I think that when, you know, sometimes when you create the idea of a restaurant, you're thinking about is it going to last? you know, five years and be the hippest thing? Or are you going to be an institution? And for us, we wanted to design a restaurant and make a place that felt like people could come year after year, generation after generation, uh, whether you're, you know, uh, just, you know, in Harvard or MIT on either end of our street, um, or, you know, you're coming, bringing your kids there because it's your place that you love going to for years. So for us, that was really what we wanted to create.
0: Well, it's so interesting that you had this attentiveness to design because as we get into the conversation with Sam and Sarah, that was a real a big part of what you're doing as well. I mean, first and foremost, you're a really great chef. I think you've got two James Beard. Nominations right uh, got, I made the long
1: list a couple of years for, for well, Rising that, star when I was a, a younger whippersnapper <laughs> that's,
0: that's that's pretty important and uh, as we were talking on Sunday morning, you've cooked at a uh, fabulous um, restaurant in London at a hotel called the Lanesboro um, so you've got quite a bit of experience but you've also got this sense of the aesthetics of design and how that kind of makes people feel when they come into the place.
1: Yeah. Like I said, when, when we had our uh, our contractor do uh, Puritan, he kept on you know, trying to go for these normal things that, you know, how restaurants look symmetrical. And I was like, ah, throw out symmetry, throw out any of those things, make it feel like this place collected a bunch of different parts of it over the years. We stole a bunch of stuff from my parents' house, some slate sinks, uh, you know, some old farm equipment, and we put them up all over the place. And I think that that kind of thing doesn't, it's not like you just went to Brimfield and picked up a bunch of antiques. I mean, each one of them has a story. I mean, the host desk is the stove that I cooked on in the first restaurant I was ever at. You know, we had this antique stove from the twenties that we found in the Cape and, uh, and that's like our host desk now. So I think from the moment you walk in the door of the restaurant, you get this sensation and feeling like, you know, it, it's, it's a place that's been around for a while and it's a
0: place that you've been there before and you want to come back to again. And were your parents full-time and still are full-time working Farmers and yeah, What, yeah. what, what did they uh, what did they farm? What did
1: they grow? So, but both my parents were actually educators in a in a previous life. My dad was a director of pupil services, worked with special ed and uh, and kindergarten screening for uh, for the town that I grew up in. And uh, my mom uh, was a guidance counselor and substitute teacher. And uh, when my dad uh, was kind of pushing forty, he thought about the idea of not. Continuing with that and starting a farm, and so he bought a farm from a family that was getting divorced down in uh, Dartmouth, Mass, where a lot of my relatives are from, and we grew potted herbs. So it's basically greenhouses growing potted herbs, and and I think that kind of helped fuel a lot of my interest to cooking, is because you know those those flavors and those, those aromas and those things that you just brush by become kind of, you know, tactile and sensory where like you're around them in a kitchen and you smell them and, and you start to learn how to work with them. Um, you know, and then time sort of progresses. And, you know, the irony of buying a, a farm from two people that are getting uh, split, uh, my parents split, and they're both still farmers in their own rights, but definitely went in different paths now. And, and I'm the one who said I didn't want to work in uh, the dirt. So I ended up working in kitchens instead.
0: In the kitchens. Well, we're, we're glad you're in the kitchen. It's really an <laughs> extraordinary you. experience. Um, Sam and Sarah, I want to talk about your kind of formative influences as well. But um, start by telling us um, the y to y shelter at Harvard Square. Uh, explain what it is, what's so special about it. You were both Harvard graduates from class of 2014, That's right, I think, um, and then had been working at a different homeless shelter and kind of came up with this concept. Um, tell us what it's like.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and first of all, you just inspired me to not make scrambled eggs for dinner. So thank you. Um, in ter- so for Why Do I? so Sam and I are the co-founders of Y2Y. Um, we met when we were in college at, at Harvard and working at the Harvard Square Homeless Shelter, which is a student-run homeless shelter for adults that sees pr- uh, predominantly 40 to 60-year-old range. Um, and while we were there, we were, we were seeing a lot more young people coming in. And we learned that at the time, there were only 12 beds in greater Boston for young people. Um, and the, the real problem is that young people don't feel safe sleeping in adult shelters and oftentimes say that they feel sleep, safer sleeping on the street. So there is a, a really big need for, for more youth beds. And it also so happened that, that the Harvard Square homeless shelter is a really safe place for young people. And so we had this skill set and this expertise and this background in providing safe shelter. And really what the community was asking was for more of that.
3: Yeah, I think we really uh, felt like we had some some things that we could could bring to this. And a lot of it was just energy and enthusiasm and time. We were students when we started working on this project. We were lucky to get full-time fellowships after we graduated in 2014 and ultimately opened Y2Y uh, right at the end of 2015. Um, some of the things that uh, we saw with young people is that, you know, a lot of young people become homeless because they identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender and are kicked out. Um, a lot of young people become homeless because they've aged out of the foster care system and don't trust the systems around them. We felt like uh, the thing we could do, we heard this again and again at the uh, at the shelter we worked at, was that we created a trusting space and a safe space. And so starting there felt like a really good place. Um, you know, anything more we could do from there would just be kind of uh, icing on the cake.
0: Now I got to see the space thanks to the wisdom of my wife Rosemary, who had learned about what you all were doing and uh, organized a bunch of us to come take a look, including some chefs and some restaurant tours. And we've got to get you there. Well, yeah, we got mean, to it's find some opportunity street. or just down the street, and they've got an amazing kitchen kind of facility there as well. But um, say a little bit more about. Um, I- I've been to a lot of homeless shelters, and often what you see are they range from places where people have, you know, kind of in, individual places to sleep, or you might have 30 cots on a floor and everything looks gray and kind of institutional. But you had, it seems to me, and this is just kind of complete karma or or serendipity, you had a sense like Will had that you wanted people to come in and really feel like this was a place that, they could, that could be theirs, at least for a period of time, because I think there's a 30-night maximum stay and... Um, that's, um, determined by lottery, but talk a little bit about, you know, it's really, it's a beautiful setting when you come in. It's unlike any other homeless facility that I've been to. What was the thinking behind that?
2: Yeah. I mean, it was essentially what Will said. We wanted young people to come in and feel like it was home. Um, it so happened at the, at the time and and still now we are young people, you know, are living in college dorms. And so I think when you, when you go into the space, actually, it's very reminiscent of a college dorm, a very young, exciting, vibrant energy, um, just to paint a picture, you know, it's it's blue and green and um, big open space. And there's a big mural on the wall and kind of different leveled ceilings. And our beds are these like little pods built into the wall. Um, and essentially what we wanted to do was create a space where young people felt like um, that it was their home. And when they came in, they felt like they had a beautiful space that was built just for them. Because like you said, Billy, many young people, one of the quotes that stuck with me the longest is saying that, Um, The color I see the most is gray, whether it's the gray sidewalks or the gray walls of a hospital or institution. I'm I'm just sick of gray. And so we kind of did the opposite of that.
0: Do you ever feel any, um, is is there ever any tension or um, just kind of a feeling of paradox of you've got Harvard students who, in many cases, come from pretty privileged backgrounds, working with young people who are almost at the bottom in terms of, you know, where they find themselves in terms of material resources, does that ever create any issues for you? Or do, or is everybody kind of welcoming and appreciative of what the students are doing for each other? Yeah, it, it definitely
3: comes up. I mean, I think it, it's almost impossible for it, for it not to, uh, to Will's point, Harvard Square is a, a pretty uh, wealthy place at this point. Um, one thing that I know motivated our students when we were doing this project, you know, we disagreed about everything. But uh, the thing that always brought us together was that uh, we all felt it was wrong for you know young people to be sleeping in some cases literally on our doorsteps you know on Harvard dorms and so i think that was a real motivator with that we've um really looked we've brought in a lot of training from community partners um from some from young adults who used to be homeless uh, to our students about how to really do this work professionally and effectively we train on um you know boundaries and we train on how sort of some of those tensions that can come up doesn't mean that they don't come up but it means it can you know hopefully lead to a discussion rather than a a frustration or, or tension um i think one thing that is pretty special to see at the shelter is that more often than not though again there definitely can be that tension is that often there's a lot of really amazing connection that happens um pe- you know the volunteers and the guests sort of sitting down together or sharing dinner um, being part of sort of joint activities, working together on a resume, uh, sort of any number of things. But, uh, you know, we're lucky and and really grateful that we see that more often than, you know, sort of the tension that certainly can come up.
0: Let's talk about the communal aspect that food brings to this because you do have a a terrific kitchen there. And how does how do the meals work? Do you serve um, people come in at night? So is Mm -hmm. it is it? dinner and then breakfast in the morning?
2: Yep. The yep. people so, eat
0: together? How does that work?
2: Yeah. So we serve dinner every night and breakfast every night. Um, we're very lucky in that much of our food is donated. So um, we work with a nonprofit called Food for Free that actually sources a lot of Harvard and other institutions um, food access and repackage it and send it to us. And We get donations from uh, the businesses around Harvard Square. Um, and then we do like pancakes and eggs for breakfast. But I think what's incredible about our kitchen and our, and our meals, it brings lots of different people together. So for our volunteers coming into the space, it's really their first point of interaction with the shelter. They're they're meeting in the kitchen. They're working together in the kitchen to prepare the food. Um, they're really bonding in the kitchen. And then they take that food out into the space and they're having those same conversations and that same, those same interactions with guests. And so I think, you know, in, in meal preparation and in sharing those meals, it's really creating communities within and and bridging communities
0: well you were talking about the formative influence of your folks that first of all they must be very proud of what you've (laughs) what you've done um did you ever was there a period where you gave them a a hard time where you threw a scare into them i mean because and the reason i ask is uh, it seems like your course was determined from a fairly young age we see lots of i've talked to lots of chefs you probably not know a lot Zigzagged through other careers and other industries till they kind of found themselves but did, did you give your folks grief or
1: <laughs> yeah I, I mean I, I there was a period I think when I turned like 21 where I said to my dad I was like did I give you all those gray hairs um but you know I think it, just you know to to your point of, of the folks who can end up you know in need of a shelter I mean any choice in life can take you down a wrong path. And I think if you don't have a a family or a support structure that can keep you, you know, with a rudder going in in at least a generally right direction, anything can happen can get you there. And I think that people take that for granted. And I think that people who haven't been on hard times don't, always have a sympathy for that. Um, You know, one of the things that was kind of one of the more formative moments of my career and and how I got into it was, you know, my dad took me out of kindergarten when I was six to go deliver plants, you know, for his business. I mean, it was... And every maybe teaching somebody the value of a dollar, maybe giving somebody the opportunity to kind of learn about what life experiences are like. But, um, you know, I did that with my folks and, and ran a family business from, you know, when I was in kindergarten to, um, you know, still to this day. Uh, and, you know, when I was in uh, high school, um, they split and it, you know, kind of rocked my world a lot because, you know, they had now had a business that was trying to be divided and a property that was being divided. And I think at that time, I found a lot of uh, I got into a lot of trouble, but I also found a lot of calm and a lot of peace and a lot of um, kind of trajectory by getting involved with a restaurant that I worked in. It was all adults. It was no other people my age I and mean, 15, 16 at the time. And, you know, that area of 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 kind of support and structure and people being like. Who cares about that? Like your job right now is to do this was incredibly uh, focusing for for me. And I think that, you know, those kind of things, again, if I didn't have that, I I might've got, who knows where I would have ended up. Um, So I think a lot of those things that happen in life, whether it's extracurricular, whether it's a job, whether it's something where you surround yourself with good people can keep you from getting in trouble and ending up on a path. But if you do go down that path, it's about the people along the way who are kind of like the buoys, you know, who can kind of be like, Hey, you know, don't just don't go past this part or like maybe turn around here or maybe go this way. Don't go, don't go left. Don't go right.
0: Sam, your mom works, uh, part-time at least at the shelter as a, um, as a, as a physician. Um, something tells me both Sam and Sarah, you didn't give your parents too much grief, at least not yet. But, um, what, what were their influences in your work?
3: Yeah, uh, I'm sure. Well, I can say I definitely gave my parents some grief, but uh, yeah, no, it's. I, I think um, my, my my both of my parents are doctors, and I think both of them have really influenced my perspective on the world. I uh, my mom's a family doctor and has worked with homeless and immigrant and low income patients virtually her whole career. Um, I got to spend a summer in high school interning in her office and blood really scares me. Like I don't really do, uh, medicine super well, but, uh, what I loved was talking to the patients. Uh, I translated a little bit for some of the patients who only spoke Spanish and, um, it was just an amazing privilege to have kind of that time spent with people and, uh, even just shadowing and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, I, you know, I, I think, uh, like, like a lot that Will has said it, that the point about, um, uh, the support really resonates with me, both in the work we see and also certainly in my own life. I mean, it's just um, uh, again and again, having people to fall back on and rely on is something that uh, I definitely saw in my own uh, upbringing and and something that a lot of our young people just haven't had. Right. It's, um, you know, again, we a lot of us make mistakes growing up. And I think having kind of uh, the support network to fall back on is is uh, was really important for me. But uh, yeah, it was it was also pretty incredible to have um, two, two parents who I looked up to so much, and certainly, especially my mom's work, um, working with a lot of, you know, a similar population that yeah. we work with today. And so as
0: a caretaker, not a big, big distance between your your mom and your dad and, and you in terms of um, uh, where you wanted to devote yourself. Uh, Sarah, how about you?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm sh- I know I still give my parents a lot of grief, and I promised to call my mom later today, so I will do that. Um, but I, I mean, both of them. I think, you know, doing this work, And I still take them for granted all the time, but um, just has made me realize and appreciate how unbelievably lucky I am to have parents who will do absolutely anything for their children. Um, And you know, I I know that will be the case as as long as they can do anything. Um, And I am so grateful for that. I think growing up, my parents, um, you know, all were both incredibly hard workers and and always pushed us to do better and to think about how we were what impact we were going to leave in on the world um and I was raised in a, in a in a Jewish upbringing and there's this concept of tikkun olam which is repairing the world and um it's not so much thought of as charity or volunteering or something you do on the side it's just a part of who you are and in your purpose and so I think I was very much raised in kind of along the lines of it's not you know, are you going to do something to better the world? It's, it's, how are you going to do that? Um, and so I'm, you know, just incredibly appreciative of my family for instilling me in that with that.
0: as our, as our time starts to wind down here, I want to, uh, get a sense of what's next for, for each of you. Uh, Will, I'm sure there's a clamor for you to open restaurants in uh, other parts of Boston, just given the success you've had. How are you thinking about that? What can you tell us?
1: You know, I think as I was saying to you earlier uh, uh, that, you know, we've got a lot of irons in the fire and I think that you've always got somebody approaching you saying, you know, you should be doing this, you should be doing that. And I think the hardest thing is, you know, we always say, and and, and I think I, I learned this from my family back in the day, you should never uh, expand faster than you can retreat. And I think that there's a lot of, as much insecurity as, you know, the two of you see with, you know, just kind of the general income level or, or you know financial instability or, or you know family instability a lot of these you know young folks have we see it even just in rents uh, that are going in boston i mean affordable housing in the city is incredibly tough so it makes it so that you know when we turn down a project it might not be because we don't have the ability to you know raise the funds to open it up it's that we might not have the kind of person capital to be able to do it. We might not be able to find staffing because there's nowhere for them to live affordably to be able to, you know, make the money that we can afford to pay. You know, there's a a fundamental issue that we're having in the restaurant industry right now where we're not uh, able to pass on a cost or, or create enough revenue from the people that are coming in for the amount of bodies that it takes to create that product. I, I mean, it's, it's why automation is kind of disrupting some of the you know, rest of the industries you know, in this country and in the world. Um, and I think that we haven't yet found a solution to that yet. I mean, I, I don't think I'm going to start opening up a burger chain. I think there's enough of them. But I mean, that's you know, a direction why somebody like Danny Meyer went in that, you know, because that is something that's scalable. And I think fine dining is tough. And I think finding good quality people to work there does make that tough. Having said that, I'm sure in the next, you know, a little bit of time, you might hear some other things about what we're doing, but, you know, it it took a while to get there and it took a while for us to figure out how we were going to do that um, the right way. Um, You know, having to, you know, we have a staff of 35 people at a restaurant that's open for, you know, dinner seven nights a week and brunch one day a week. And to do that on a hundred somewhat seat restaurant, you know, that's 35 people that, you know, I'm in charge of their life, livelihood, you know, yeah. their livelihood, them being able to afford to do what they do, uh, find a place to live. I'm paying people almost double now what I was paying when they, when we opened the restaurant just to make sure that I can retain good staff. And that comes at a cost and, and not, always are people willing to pay. And I know that, you know, again, in my world is incredibly different and incredibly similar to the the world that that you guys exist in, but that is the toughest battle that I have is how do I keep like I said, you're either pissing somebody off or you're making somebody happy and it's who are you willing to trade to be able to get there
0: and i've heard uh chef and read that there are restaurants in boston that have actually changed their hours they close earlier so that because their staff can't afford to live in boston because of the rents and they have to be able to take public transportation or take the tea so that they've some restaurants have actually had to change their hours just to be able to support this kind of economic struggle of their their team members um What's next for Why 2 y And I'm just curious about the name, which obviously is Youth to Youth, but, but did did you debate other names? Was that the obvious one? Uh, how did you come to it? And tell us what your what the future holds.
2: Yeah. So in terms of the name, oof, that was an awful, not awful, that <laughs> a was long a headache <laughs> a of long a process, process just because neither of us are very creative at all. Um, And so <laughs> we had like, you know, lists and lists of names that our students generated that, either advisory council generally We had like
3: marketing professionals volunteering their time who couldn't figure
2: out. Yeah, we it did out. one of those like word maps with like clouds and it was just not great. Um mm-hmm. I'm sorry
0: to make you revisit it. It sounds <laughs> painful, I can tell. Yeah, I mean what were
2: some there were some crazy ones like uh let's see, the the Borough from like Harry Potter, was that one of them? Yeah, the, yeah, pit, yeah. the pit the pit stop because Harvard Harvard Square, like the pit. Is the tea area? um, I think why we ended. I mean, why do
3: I was right? Why do I was a little bit of a like what we hate the least, but but it also, I mean, I think it represented this idea I, I mentioned earlier that we fundamentally believe as a as a group of students that. Our peers should be safely housed and have the chance to succeed. So, it, I mean, I think again, it, it wasn't like it wasn't like we came to it and it was a sudden light bulb moment. Like this is the name we love. But I think what we what we do love is the sentiment behind it, and I think uh, that really helped us get through uh, a, what was a challenging process.
0: Um, and say a little bit about what's next for for Y2Y. What's the future hold? Um, what's What's your ambition to where this can go?
2: Yeah. So very immediately we open in less than a month. So right now we're a seasonal shelter open October through April. So, um, our opening date is coming up in a little over three weeks, uh, yeah, a little over three weeks, um, which is really exciting and keeping us very busy and up late at night. Um, but I think more broadly, we, you know, we're really excited to think about what are the next steps for Y2Y. Um, we've started kind of now, that we've been through two seasons. So we opened in December 2015. Now that we've been through two seasons, we've, we've had this time to step back and breathe and think about what Why do y could be. And we're really excited to spend time over the next year thinking about our program model and how to make it the most effective programming and shelter for young people. Think about our advocacy strategy and think about whether this is a model that could be scaled to other places where there is a similar need for beds.
3: So we this sort of two immediate projects we've been working on is to add to our season length. So we opened a summer program for the first time this summer, and we want to continue uh, being open as much of the year as possible, knowing that uh, student volunteer uh, power can only go so far. Um, and then the second is, uh, to Sarah's point, we, we've we been exploring with some students at Yale, actually, who have done an amazing job just kind of feeling uh, out the feasibility for a shelter in New Haven, whether we can also kind of jump Exciting. on and support their work. So Exciting. Uh, hopefully we'll have more news on that soon, but have been taking some initial steps and they've done a great job.
0: Well, I'm going to recommend a brainstorming brunch with the three of us and my wife, Rosemary, at Puritan Company. Oh, that sounds um, amazing. And I think we could you know, we, we could think expansively about what the future holds.
1: And let me tell you, naming a restaurant is nowhere near. <laughs> I like Puritan. <laughs> it, it's, it's not any easier than what you guys went through. Yeah. Right Trust me. There's an ongoing list in my phone all the time.
0: Uh, and I think you told me when I saw you Sunday that your family is... Thir- your 13th generation. 13th uh, generation maybe So Puritan, wow. Puritan really did. did That's did, better it, than Why Do I. I yeah,
1: You try having your marketing person jam that down everybody's throats.
0: So. <laughs> uh, last thing I want to ask you, you will mention Danny Meyer, who uh, we happened to be with last night for an annual Share of Strength dinner. And I want to kind of close the conversation where we began talking about hospitality. Danny always talks about hospitality is not just the technical skills of how you welcome somebody or where you put the fork, but how you make people feel. Um, and I'd like to ask each of you, what, what do you aspire to in terms of how you make people feel? What's the feeling you want them to have when they come into your place?
1: I well, I mean I'm I'm going to let Sam and Sarah take this I mean I think that they're they're doing you know God's work you know well, and I and I'm and I'm figuring out some sort of way to, to to make a dollar so why don't you guys start that off
3: I think um one thing that I my family has lived in the same house that we moved into when I was 6 months old in Central Square in Cambridge and uh um when when I go back there now uh to to see my family um I, I am, I feel so lucky that I feel this sense of emotional safety, like right when I walk in and literally like it's, it's just imbued in the place now. Like it's about my family, but it's imbued in the home. So, um, and I think that that feeling of like, uh, this is me, right? Like this, I am safe here, um, is something that I know is really personal and important to me, but I think also is sort of a, a guiding principle for us across Y2Y. Um,
2: I've been trying to think of over the past 30 seconds and nothing like particular comes to mind. But I think the the feeling that, you know, the kind of what I hope to make people feel is that sense of safety, but to take it, you know, in another direction, the sense of safety to to challenge me, to challenge the people around them, to feel that safety, to grow and to take risks um which is something that i think when you when you don't have stable housing and you don't know where your next meal is coming from you don't have that sense of safety to think about what's next you
1: know and and i think from the restaurant side i w- i was speaking to a group of uh, people in in sort of marketing and hospitality the other day and I, they asked me a question about where i was you know thinking that you know the best restaurants would go and i said you know hospitality it gets just thrown around the wrong way and i think that you need to start looking at things of understanding whether they're a relationship or a transaction, and I think that that is sort of my new definition of of how to be hospitality you know focused is you know are we creating relationships or is this just a transaction because sometimes things are just transactions, sometimes somebody just needs a bed, you know or but maybe they need another chance, maybe they need somebody to just hear them out and listen to them, and for us, sometimes it's about. Seeing that this guest has come into the restaurant and every time they're there, they have a problem and you just walk up to them and say, you know what, we really want you to continue to dine here and it seems like there's always an issue. So meals on us tonight, you know, give us a second chance next time you come back, you know, and we had some guests in the other night that were this great couple and they ordered all this expensive, fantastic food and at the end, we just took, you know, a few dishes off and just said, thanks for coming and spending time with us. And I hope that that investment in somebody means that you get that back tenfold. You get somebody who's willing to come back and bring a party of of more people and who want to experience that. And I think that that's a hard thing to teach people from a financial standpoint is sometimes you have to take a little less money to get a little bit more in the long run. And I think that if we can all figure out a way to do that in our lives, you know, from what you guys do to what we do to what you do, Billy... I think that we can maybe get there all together
2: yeah it literally just occurred to me that we we both call our clients guests um, which i think really shows kind of how we approach it that it's really our privilege to work with these people
0: well i want to thank the three of you for a really great conversation um for our listeners Will Gilson until you open up your next restaurant you can be found on Cambridge Street in Cambridge at Puritan Company and it's a fabulous fabulous dining experience thanks for being with us Hey thanks for having me And Sam Greenberg Sarah Rosencrantz why do i uh, the website would be just why do i.org
3: why do i harvardsquare.org
0: why do i harvardsquare.org that's how people can learn more about why do i and about how they can be helpful and supportive thanks both for being with us get closer to the problems that you care about. There's a famous photographer named Robert Capa who once said, if your pictures are not good enough, you're not close enough. Well, in the social change space, getting close, bearing witness, going into the community, working with people directly, getting an understanding of what they need, that's often the precursor to really powerful transformational change. Don't just post, don't just preach, get your hands dirty and get involved. Ad Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Kerry Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Ad Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Ad Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.